We're going to read this sheet and uh, learn a little bit tonight about how to rot your bones. So, here we go. Proverbs 3.31, beginning there, let's read this together. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Be not nor desire to be with them. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask God to help us now by His Spirit to help us to understand what He would have us to know tonight. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that You would come by Your Spirit and that You would open our hearts and open our eyes that we might see Jesus, that we might be encouraged by Him, and that we might have, as the men on the road to Emmaus had, our hearts burning within us because of who You are. Would You be pleased to do that tonight? Would You be pleased in these next few moments to use me uh, to use all my insecurities and my fears and make much of your name. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, though he never saw it coming, his desire for the gifts of another drove him mad. This is the realization that the viewer is left with when watching the story of Antonio Salieri's or Salieri's life unfold in the 1985 Best Picture winner, Amadeus. The movie is so profound in its impact because it so clearly depicts one of the deepest and darkest conditions of the human heart. Set in the late 1700s in in Vienna, a city known for its music, it's a story about the relationship between Salieri and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Salieri, the court composer in Vienna, had long desired and even prayed for exceptional musical skill and talent. He reasoned if God would but give him the gift in this area and make him great, he would lead a life of devotion unto him. But Mozart, but Mozart, y'all, he appears on the scene and with his incomparable talent and skill and in so doing, when he appears, he crushed Salieri's hopes for greatness and renown especially in Salieri's own eyes. In turn, Salieri, his life shows all the symptoms of a heart captured by envy. He undercuts Mozart. He seeks to sabotage him and eventually plays a role, yes, even in his death. Salieri's envy would never be healed. In fact, after attempting to take his own life, he is admitted to a mental asylum where he sits at a piano with a priest nearby ready to receive his confession. The priest acknowledges, however, that he too has some musical training when he was a young child. And so in an attempt to see if the priest knows any of Salieri's compositions, he begins to play on the piano nearby. And after each one of his musical pieces, the priest confesses that he knows not one of them until one more. Salieri begins to play. And the priest recognizes it. And he exclaims, yes, yes, I know it. 
And he even hums out the last few measures of the piece. Oh, that's very nice, says the priest. I didn't know that you wrote that. And Salieri responds, I didn't. That was Mozart. Realizing that he will only be second best, Salieri is rolled down the hallway in the asylum and proclaims himself the patron saint of mediocrities. His envy has eaten him alive, rotting him from the inside out. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of envy. Most of us have some vague sense of what it is, and if we do, we most often view it as no big deal, something petty at worst. But I would like to show you tonight that the book of Proverbs could not disagree with you more. You see, it is going to tell us that envy is a crushing character vice that spends most of its time hidden in us. And so most of us, because of its hidden, because it's hidden, are unaware of envy's presence and its destructive power in our lives. So tonight the Proverbs are going to bring us face to face with what the bard William Shakespeare called the great green-eyed monster, envy. In fact, the ancient Greeks and Romans used to speak of envy as a problem with what the eye desires, though it likely isn't what you think, as we'll see. But the original name for envy was actually invidia, which meant to look against or to look at with a hostile manner. And so using the rubric of an eye disease, I'd like for us to see tonight how these texts and Proverbs show us the condition of envy, the symptoms of envy, and the healing of envy. All, of course, with the great hope that we might not see with green eyes, but that we might see with clear eyes the real gospel of grace to us in Jesus Christ. That's my great hope for us tonight. So let's take a look first at the condition of envy. I'm going to be looking primarily at Proverbs 3.31 and 24.1 on your sheet there or in your Bible. And we first need to understand what envy is, its condition. What is it like? That's what I'm trying to get after in this point. And I want you to see this, that envy, as I'm seeking to define it today, really is different than what we often associate it with in its synonyms, that of jealousy or greed or covetousness. In these texts, in fact, the same word gets translated jealousy and envy. It's the same Hebrew word because they're so closely related. But I'd like to, show, to tell you this, that jealousy is distinct from envy as we use it. We use it primarily about having something and then potentially losing it. That's what we often think of when we think about jealousy. So think about like the jealous girlfriend, right? She's jealous that she might lose her boyfriend, right? Something she has that she doesn't want to lose. And with respect to covetousness, the, the author Rebecca DeYoung in her book called Glittering Vices, she says that envy and covetousness, that desire for something, are actually very, very similar in this way. They say this, that where covetousness and envy are the same because they both desire something that the person lacks. But covetousness is about having a particular object. And listen, this is where it's important. But envy, on the other hand, is more severe. It is concerned with the rival not having it too. Let me see if I can explain with this quote. Listen to what DeYoung, or read up here on the screen what DeYoung writes. She says, The covetous person delights in acquiring the thing itself, while the envier delights in the way that the redistribution of goods affects her 
and her rivals' respective positions. Thus, this is sinister, y'all, it gives the envier satisfaction to see her rival's good taken away, even if she herself does not acquire it as a result. You see what that's saying? That's drilling down on what envy is. And then envy, therefore, is what the great author Dorothy Sayer says, is the sin of the have-nots. And it is a destroyer. Rather than have anybody happier than itself, it will see us all miserable together. Ugh! I mean, envy does this to us. This is what it's defining it as. And why does it do this to us? Well, it's simple. Envy does this to us because envy is primarily, believe it or not, about identity, about who we are. In other words, it's not primarily about what we have or what we don't have. Rather, it is about who we are or who we aren't. And let me show you what I mean. So what do these texts show us about envy? Look at 331 and 2317. These show us that envy is always other-centered and is connected with what we choose, verse 331, and do not choose any of his ways, or desire. Take a look at 24.1. It says what? Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. In each, the individual desires something that he or she doesn't have. In the first, a way of life, and in the second, company or fellowship, a group of people. Therefore, envy's gaze is always on others and plays by definition the comparison game. Envy needs comparison to survive, y'all. But it doesn't just play the comparison game. It looks at others' skill, others' stuff, or others' status in life, and it assumes, this was so important, and it assumes a value judgment about the self based on those gifts seen in the other. Here it is. It reasons like this. The more or better you have, the more or better you what? You are. In short, the envier believes that stuff and status are a definer of personal significance and worth. The envier sees the other person and concludes that they themselves are not enough as enough as a person. And so, underneath envy is really a question about identity and who am I? Therefore, envy all stands on two legs. The first is who I am as a person is defined by what I have in terms of my goods and my gifts and my status. And the second is that this is measured in comparison to other people. A quote to kind of drive this home, Francis Bacon once keenly observed, I love this, envy is ever joined to the comparing of a man's self. And where there is no comparison, no envy. It's really telling. Think about it like this. It is the sin of comparative self-worth based on another's stuff or status. Let me say that again. Envy at its core is the sin of comparative self-worth based on another's stuff or status. Okay, let me bring this down and actually illustrate it so I can show you a clear picture of what this is like. Spring break's next week, okay? This might be true of some of you, so I, I don't know any of this. Is, this is, what is the, the, what's the disclaimer at the, uh, at the bottom of movies that the events here contained are all fictional? I don't know your story So in this, okay? But listen, a group of friends is going somewhere next week on spring break and you've not been included in the invite. And it's not because people spite you or there's any ill will toward you. 
but you desperately want to go. So you begin to envy your friends on that trip. Why? Well, it's not so much for the enjoyment of the trip and the people on it, which would be a good reason to go. Rather, the perception of the other person's or people's status and goods are seen as being in. And therefore, to not go is out and excluded. And to be named from that, a nobody. You want to go on the trip because of being on the trip says a lot about you as a person. In this case, she, whoever that person is, or he, wrongly believes that this trip will give her significance and value as a person. I mean, who wants to be on the, who wants to be the person that's not on the trip? Not to go on that trip isn't merely about missing out on the trip. It's seen as missing out on being the right person. Do you catch it? The right person in the eyes of the envier. In other words, identity is on the line here because status is connected to others' things. And this, y'all, is how envy works. Let me say it like this. Envy, therefore, really is a sadness or an anger in others' rejoicing. You see that? That envy really is a sadness or an anger at somebody else's rejoicing. But I want to suggest to you that envy envy gets flip-flopped too. That envy as well is actually what? Rejoicing at another person's sadness. There's a great German word, schadenfreude. You need to implement it into your language and it literally means the downfall, the joy and the downfall of another. It's to look at somebody. And here's what I want you to see. Don't you know that to be true in your life? Like, can you just be honest for a moment and say, there are my friends that when bad stuff happens to them, I am actually happy because I want what they have and I can't get it. That's how sinister envy is. It is crazy, y'all. And here's why it's so important for us to see it. Because I want you to see that envy really is in all of our lives. You're not alone, I promise. I mentioned that envy, though, is a hider. And therefore, we want to look at some of the telltale, telltale signs of envy in our, in our lives. Which brings me to my second point. Not only have we considered the condition of envy, but its symptoms as well. And I'm going to look primarily at 14.13 here. Like a child playing hide-and-seek with its parents... With its little toes hanging out at the bottom, so too envy hides while partially displaying itself in our lives. How? In two major ways. The first, I will admit, is harder to see. It takes some looking for, and the other is much easier to see. So let's take a look, first of all, at this idea of a hidden danger. This idea of a hidden danger or it being an internal disintegration. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. First of all, I want you to see this. Envy, as one of the seven, quote, deadly sins, is most deadly, and I assume that all the deadlies flow from pride here, precisely because it hides from us. You can't see it. In fact, we downplay its danger by using playful little phrases like this, right? Oh, I just envy her dress. Or, I'm so envious of his athletic skills, right? And those are actually seen as what? Like compliments that we pay to each other. So, what I'm saying is, I'm saying like the use of the word in that way is actually inoculating us to seeing the destructiveness of envy in our lives. Think about it like this. It actually camouflages itself underneath labels like this. 
hard work. I'm not envious. I'm just working hard. Or it can be underneath this word too. It can, it can manifest or camouflage itself with underneath words like this, justice and fairness. That's not fair. I want, I want justice. You see what I'm saying? Which really, at the level of the core of the heart, it's really you just want what they have. So it can masquerade that way. And that's what I'm trying to say. Envy is hidden. It never shows up and says, Hi, envy here. I'm in your life. It doesn't do that. It's too embarrassed. I mean, think about it. Isn't envy, don't we think about envy as something petty? As something embarrassing to admit? When's the last time you admitted to somebody, one of your close friends, you know, I'm really struggling with envy. I want what he or she has, and I can't believe that that's true. You know what? You'll never grow wise. You'll never grow wise in this world unless you begin to see the power of envy in your life. It hides within us, and as it does, it rots us from the inside out. Like termites silently doing their destructive work on a beautiful house from the outside, so too envy destroys from the inside out. Hence, 14.13, listen to this verse. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. And I love this description. But envy makes the bones rot. Our bones provide physical support and structure. And envy rots them in a symbolic sense. And, and, and it shows us really what is inside. The second thing I want to show you, not only that it's hidden, a symptom. So it's kind of funny, you're saying, how can it be a sin if it's hidden? That's my point. I want you to know that it's hidden and it's going to show itself as something else. That's the first thing I'm trying to say. Secondly, second symptom is relational isolation. Envy isolates us from other people. Why? Makes sense, right? Because they are seen as barriers to our joy and happiness. They have what we want, so they must go down or they must go without. You see, envy makes, us, makes it very, very hard to rejoice with other people. When they experience joy and delight, and when some like really good thing comes into your friend's life, like a job, for example, or an engagement, or you know maybe they got into that graduate school program, the question that you need to ask is, can you honestly rejoice with them? And if you can't, do you know why? It's because something's rotting your bones. It's because envy is deep in you. So we need the gospel to help us. But envy makes that impossible because you want it. And so you begrudge them the good that they have. And we can remain isolated from them because we can't enter into celebrating with them. I love what the, the classical writer Ovid wrote in his book Metamorphoses. And he says this. He says he personifies envy in this way. Just listen to the, the sort of gruesome description that he depicts her as. He says her face was sickly pale her whole body lean and wasted, and she squinted horribly. Her teeth were discolored and decayed, her poisonous breast of a greenish hue, and her tongue dripped venom. I love this last line. Gnawing at others and being gnawed, she was herself her own torment. That's the wickedness of envy. It destroys the envier in the most ghastly way. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed that we typically only envy people with whom we see ourselves as equals or rivals over some desire? Think about it like this. I mean, if you're a business major here at TCU and you desire to be in the Neely Fellows program or some other program, you really don't envy the theater major who just landed a major role. You don't envy them that. That's because you don't care about it. But, or you might be a poli-sci major who you don't envy the bio majors' new MCAT scores that were amazing. 
You don't care about that. But find out that a peer lands a major internship with a sitting U.S. senator, and the eyes become what? Green. Green with envy. So here's the thing I want you to see. A further word of where you see things in your life uh, so that you can, by God's grace, begin to root things out. I would suggest to you that one of the major ways that we see envy on display in our culture is, well, I don't have, I'll pull it out, is if I click on my social media. Let me show you why. Because we scroll through our feeds, right? And we say, wow, they look so happy with their boyfriend. Or, oh my gosh, they went on a great vacation. And you know what? I'm sitting here scrolling through an Instagram feed because my life sucks. That's how we often reason, right? So if I could just go to that bar or that coffee shop or if I could grow succulents perfectly or have that shirt, right? Or if I could just date that body or I need, my, I need to find the perfect background for my pick. You just feel the envy rising. I want what they have because I want to be what I perceive them to be. And if I can't have it, then neither should they be able to either. And it's at this point that envy has taken full bloom. Do you see this? Do you see this in your own life? Again, envy needs comparison to live. And so the way to get out from under it is to drop the comparison game. It's to let it go. My simple hope so far is that you begin to see this in your life. Here's the thing, y'all. So long as our identity or value as a person is attached in a relative fashion to someone else, and that through their goods, envy will never be satisfied. It will always ask for more. I love what C.S. Lewis says about envy. He says that envy is insatiable. The more you concede to it, the more it will demand. And you know what? He's right. You give envy what it wants, it is never satisfied. Why? You see, if your sense of identity doesn't rest securely and solely in God's delight in you, in Jesus, no matter what you get, it's never going to make you happy. It doesn't matter what you get. You're never going to be happy. You'll be perpetually sour because stuff, skills, and social status can never give you the identity that you so desperately long for and need. And all of this makes us I think Joseph F. Stein puts it great, like, great when he says this. He says this. Of all, or of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. It's no fun. It rots the bones. Gnawed at it yourself. I mean, it's just crazy, y'all. Envy, I hope you can see, and is incredibly powerful and destructive in our lives. Its hiddenness remains its greatest strength. And I want you to see, but there's something else, though, in God's economy that is more sure and more powerful, something that can bring about the great healing of envy. What is that? I turn now to my third point. The Proverbs tell us in 23.17, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. You know what this is saying? It's saying, let your hearts be continually caught up in the fear of the Lord all the day. That's what it's saying. We've seen weeks ago that the fear of the Lord doesn't mean being afraid of God because He might get you. A lot of us think that. When we read the fear of the Lord, we think, oh, I need to be scared of God. That's not what the fear of the Lord is in the Bible. Rather, it refers to honoring Him, to reverencing Him, 
to delighting in Him and worshiping Him. And so the point is, is this. When you do that, look at 1923, what it says, that the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. That's the thing. The envier is never at rest within their soul. They're always at an unrest because they're always looking for something that somebody else has to make themselves happy. And this is saying there is rest for you. There is rest for you. Where? The cure to our envy is found in worshiping and delighting in God precisely for what He has done for us. And by extension, what He has given to us. Envy's antidote then, its cure is the gospel. I love what Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said. He says this, The cure for envy lies in living under a constant sense of the divine presence, worshiping God and communing with Him. I love this line. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. The fear of God casts out envy of men. You see, y'all, at the heart of the good news of Christianity is that God Himself has entered into our world to bring us home to Himself. It's not, hear me out on this, I don't know what you think about Christianity, but Christianity at its core is not about being a good person. That's not what it's about at its core. It's not about achieving certain good things. The Gospel never says, do good, then God will accept you. In fact, it flips it and it says, you've been accepted already in Christ, so now obey. And why have we been accepted? But when Jesus died on the cross, He gave us something. Something that lies at the very heart of envy itself. Something that drives us into envy. He gives us a brand new status. And what is that status? It's the identity that Jesus Himself has with God. Accepted and beloved. You see, on the cross, God was basically saying this. I see you. I see your junk. I see your crud. I see it all the way in. And it does not scare me one bit. In fact, I see it so much, and because I delight in you, I take you all the way in. And I not only forgive you, I now give to you a new status, one that Jesus Himself has with God, that one of acceptance and of delight. You see, on the cross, Jesus was rejected. He bore our shame, that feeling, as it were, of never being enough and the need to be covered. I mean, all of us feel naked. That's the picture there. And so now, we have what envy has been seeking all along, a status and a rank that can never be lost. And in light of this, we can, as the proverb says, rest satisfied because we have an identity and a status that doesn't depend on stuff, y'all, or on other people, but solely on the finished work of Jesus for us. Jesus was the one who had it all. He had the goods. He had the gifts. He had the internally significant status. And being the most unenvious person in the world, He bore our insecurities, our shame, and our envy, and gave us all that He had so that we might have acceptance and that our envy might begin to die. And when you see the cross, you can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has given this to you. 
There is nothing left for you to do or pay. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. His work is done. And therefore, all the smiles of heaven, the ones that really matter, are firmly and forever yours. So let me take a few moments to kind of draw this in. And what are the results of how this might come home to us? Here it is. It really does free you all to rejoice with others when they get good things or have amazing gifts. Y'all see that? The gospel frees you to be able to do that. You see, do you have friends who actually have good things in their lives? Can you enter into it? You see, you can put the comparison game down because of the gospel. Your self-worth is not bound up in what someone else has or is, friends. Because of Jesus has done for you, you rest secure in Him. I love this poem. I'm not going to read the poem, but it's, it's one written by Victor Hugo. And he had a poem once where envy, personified envy, and personified greed or avarice were both given an opportunity to have whatever they wanted, whatever they wanted. And think about it, envy wants things, greed wants things, right? So long as, there was the condition, so long as the other received double of whatever they asked for. Here's how envy replied. Well then, I wish to be blind in one eye. The gospel tells us, y'all, that the God of grace is plentiful with it. There is so much grace to go around. There is more than enough to go around. And somebody else having doesn't mean that you're going to have less. Not in the economy of grace. And secondly, it allows you to find joy in your life. How many of you are the sort of people that always is something is wrong? Nothing's ever good enough. Everything can always be better. When I look at somebody else, their life is better. If I had this, I would be happier. I'm saying the gospel frees you to enjoy the moment. To actually look up and say, I'm at TCU. This is a real privilege to get to learn. I have these great friends. God has put them in my life. I don't know, like I have food to eat tonight. You see that? It's okay to stop and smell the roses and to enjoy life. And as long as envy is waging war on your bones, you're never able to do that. But gospel has set us free to be able to enjoy, to be able to enjoy the life that God has given you right now. And you can stop worrying about what He hasn't given you. I mean, think about this. You ever thought about that? How much of our sorrow is bound up in us wanting what God has just said no to? He's not holding out from you. He's given you His Son. Here it is. The one for whom Jesus, the one who had everything, He left His comfort and His status to win and to rescue you. You don't have to prove yourself by your involvements, by your accomplishments, by your body shape or success anymore. Because why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's the promise of the gospel, friends. Well, and likely what is my favorite of the Narnia tales, the horse and his boy. C.S. Lewis tells the story of a boy named Shasta and how he, though an orphan, has been protected all of his life. Upon seeing this, he asks Aslan, the Christ figure in these stories, why his friend, Erebus, has been wounded. Aslan responds, Child, said the voice, I'm telling you your story, not hers. 
I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? Said, asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low, so the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad too. God gives each of us our story. And you are free from having to worry about somebody else's story. God's not going to tell you their story. He gives you yours. And because He is God, He has the right to do that. But because He is good, He promises to give you all that you need. Reverence and joy. Reverence and joy together. And therefore, God Himself, because He is good, is going to give us all that we need in goods and gifts and status. Not just for this life, but for the one to come. And y'all, this alone has the power to give you a tranquil heart and in the end, to rot the envy that is rotting you. Friends, we can give up our envy. Why? Because Jesus Himself was given up for us. That's the gospel tonight, friends. It's the best news you're going to hear. That Jesus has given up for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You care for us. We thank You that You love us. And we ask now that we would see that because You are for us in Christ, You will not withhold anything, especially the new status and identity that You have given us in Jesus. Would You meet us? Would You comfort us? Would You care for us? And help us to see how wonderful and how kind and how beautiful Jesus Himself is. Thank You, Lord. We pray this in Your name. Amen.